Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. so much for coming um, and thank you so much to the college for the invitation um, yeah just to provide a little bit of context uh, for this presentation I'm a literary critic by trade with a particular focus on the literature of the 18th century and for the past uh, six years or so I've been working on a book about the representation of venereal disease in the long 18th century so broadly 1660 to 1800 we have lots of medical histories of syphilis uh, from this period, and, and a period in which there was believed to be a venereal disease epidemic in Britain. And I wanted to do something a little bit different for my book. So essentially, instead of focusing on the real life experience of, um, of, of living with, dying from, coping with venereal disease in the 18th century, instead I look at how the disease was represented in literature and visual art. And broadly speaking, the book looks at the kinds of concepts or ideas that become associated with venereal disease in 18th century uh, literature and art. And one of those concepts was the nose, the disfigured nose. Um, and anyone here who's a clinician or a retired clinician will know that there's an obvious biological or physiological basis for that connection. But it goes, I think, far beyond uh, the, the, the connection with the symptoms of venereal disease. So I want to take as my starting point today Lawrence Stern's nine-volume novel, Tristram Shandy, which hopefully is a novel uh, lots of you know or have heard of. So this nine-volume comic masterpiece was published um, by Stern between 1759 and 1767, and it features a hero who believes his life has been uh, irreparably damaged by the fact that his nose was catastrophically crushed during a tragic accident at birth by a misapplication of the newly invented forceps. And he makes noses a theme in his autobiographical text because he feels that his crushed nose has had such a defining influence on his life. And he writes a chapter on noses in the text, and in that chapter he explains, oops, sorry, by the word nose, throughout all this long chapter of noses and in every other part of my work, where the word nose occurs, I declare by that word I mean a nose and nothing more or less. Now, even without Tristram's insistence to the contrary here, no reader of this sentence could be in doubt that, to misquote Freud, sometimes a nose is not just a nose. Elsewhere in the novel, Stern gestures towards a long tradition of jokes that compared the size of a man's nose with the size of his penis. So uh, think of the um, jokes about the size of Trump's hands that were in common currency a few years ago. The same kind of jokes applied in a lot of 18th century joke books and tavern songs. So there were lots of um, innuendos about women preferring a, a man with a long nose. And this joke was surely not that far from Joshua Reynolds's mind when he painted his famous portrait of the very long-nosed Lawrence Stern in 1760 with the elongated finger there drawing attention to the, the length of Stern's impressive 
uh, nose. But the obsession with noses in Tristram Shandy also, I want to suggest to you today, has a much darker meaning. It references a literary and visual culture that used the nose as a gauge of sexual health and that equated the disfigured nose with the threat of venereal infection. Now there was, of course, a built-in biological basis for this association. Of all the symptoms of syphilis, or the pox, as it was colloquially, colloquially known in this period, none was more obvious or more horrifying than the collapse of the bridge of the nose. Afflicted with this particular complication, the infected man found that his face increasingly resembled a skull, providing a graphic and obtrusive warning that the wages of sin is death. Yet the link between venereal disease and nasal disfiguration, as the medical professionals among us will attest, is not necessarily an inevitable one. In some patients, syphilis never enters the tertiary stage, the stage at which nasal um, destruction can occur. And even among those who do contract tertiary syphilis, only a portion will experience the destruction of nasal cartilage. Even given the existence of real-life noseless men and women on the streets of 18th century London, the realities of life during what medical historians believe to have been a venereal disease epidemic still seem inadequate to explain the extraordinary proliferation of no-nose jokes in 18th century British literary and visual culture. From the mid-1600s onwards, this one facial feature took on a cultural life of its own, providing the punchline for comic novels, joke books, satires, cartoons. It also inspired eccentric literary set pieces with texts like rhinology or a critical dissertation on noses. So these are some of the texts I've spent the last few years reading alongside works like Stern's. Now, one reason for the popularity of this material, these kinds of no-nose jokes, I'd like to suggest, was that there was a wealth of meaning that had already accrued around the nose as a defining feature. For centuries, the nose had been used as a marker of class, race, and religious identity. And in figurative use, the, the nose is still often referenced in catchphrases dealing with the formation of social groups or the policing of social boundaries. So consider phrases like looking down one's nose or turning one's nose up or holding one's nose in the air. Right? All of these phrases use the nose to refer to essentially class-based forms of discrimination. The nose was also essential to religious distinctions. So Christians had spent centuries distinguishing their allegedly straight noses from the hooked noses of Jews. And Anglicans distinguished themselves from dissenters on the grounds that the latter sung hymns through the nose. They nosed their, their, their singing. Perhaps most important of all, noses played a key role in the 18th century's new and developing attempts to distinguish between different races. As influential treatises by the natural historian Oliver Goldsmith, the French naturalist Georges-Louis Leclerc, and the Swiss modernizer of physiognomy, Johann Lavater, referenced the shape and size of the nose as one of the features that distinguished between men from different racial backgrounds. 
Just as the hooked nose offered potential evidence of Jewish difference, so the flat noses of Asians and Africans were taken as a sign not only of racial otherness, but also, more disturbingly, of inferior moral and intellectual character. So according to Lavater, for example, both an African's flat nose and his, quote, weakness of mind, unquote, could be traced back to the same, uh, what Lavater calls, defects in skeletal structure. So Lavater explains, the bone of the nose is too short, and the sockets of the teeth advance too much, hence that little flat nose and thick lips, which are natural to all the nations of Africa. For Lavater, the flat nose served not only to distinguish the African from the European, but also to signal the, quote, character of stupidity, unquote, that justified the African's subordinate position within European society. A related analogy could be applied to distinctions between species, as the flat nose was also useful in distinguishing man from what 18th century naturalists were soon beginning to identify as his closest relative in the animal kingdom, the ape or monkey. And those of you with an art historical background might be familiar with um, the, the tradition in, in painting of the singery, right? Illustrations that depict monkeys or apes wearing human clothes and doing civilized or uncivilized human things like playing cards, right? This is a popular artistic genre in this period, tying in with these same kinds of connections of figuring out that mankind's closest relative in the animal kingdom is the ape or monkey. So just as the African's flat nose ostensibly identified him as a member of an inferior race, for writers like Buffon and Lavater, so the primate's nose could be seen as indicating an inferior species. Within this broader cultural context, the flat nose of the syphilitic functioned not only as the hallmark of an inferior being, but also as one means of linking the various groups characterized by nasal abnormality or nasal deformity, blacks, Jews, primates, and syphilitics. Now, it wasn't until the 19th and 20th centuries that these associations coalesced to provide the background for systematic programs of eugenics and scientific racism. But many 18th century depictions of deformed noses in literature and art already make these kinds of very disturbing associations between the black, the Jewish, the simian, and the diseased. Let's go back and start with uh, class status. So many of the imaginative representations of venereal disease from this period build on the fundamental link between nasal structure and class identity. And they use the deformed syphilitic nose to make jokes about class difference. So here's one example. This is an anecdote, oft reprinted, oft uh, told, presumably, during the 18th century, about the poet and playwright William Davenant, who was a sufferer of syphilis. Sir William Davenant, the poet, had no nose, who going along the mews one day, a beggar woman followed him, crying, ah, God preserve your eyesight, sir. The Lord preserve your eyesight. Why, good woman, said he, what makes you pray for my eyesight? Ah, dear sir, said the woman, if it should please God that you grow dim-sighted, you have no place to hang your spectacles upon. So here Davenant's fallen nose, it's not just the comic evidence of his sexual misconduct, it's also a means of undermining his elevated social status. 
The same joke might be told about anyone who had no nose, but were pointedly informed that the diseased man is Sir William Davenant, the poet, a titled gentleman, a favorite of the court. So the joke sees Davenant demoted from the master of wit to an object of ridicule, as his deformed nose allows his various claims to superior social status. So his aristocratic title, his gender, his successful career as a court wit and writer, to be overturned by a woman whose lowly place on the social scale would otherwise lead us to class her as his inferior. The same comedy of social exclusion characterizes Tobias Smollett's treatment of a nasally deformed doctor in his novel, Humphrey Clinker. So in this novel, Smollett uh, follows the travels of a Welsh family who are led by their curmudgeonly and gouty patriarch, whose name is Sir Matthew Bramble. And the family travels around the UK, essentially seeking health and recreation in various cities and spa towns in the kingdom. And at the pump rooms in Bristol Hotwell, which is one of the first places they go to, Bramble meets a spa physician who's referred to in the novel as Dr. L. Um, and George Rousseau has pointed out the figure is probably based on a German spa physician whose name was Diedrich Wessel Linden. But when Dr. L uh, approaches Bramble, he boasts of his ability to cure venereal disease, and he suggests that Matthew Bramble, the curmudgeonly patriarch, might have an infection. Bramble very quickly puts an end to this conversation, and clearly what he regards as a very undesirable social connection, by drawing attention to a, a very suspicious-looking nose on the doctor's face. Bramble told him there was a wart upon his nose that looked a little suspicious. I don't pretend to be a judge of those matters, said he, but I understand that warts are often produced by the distemper, i.e. venereal disease, and that one upon your nose seems to have taken possession of the very keystone of the bridge, which I hope is in no danger of falling. Lyndon seemed a little confounded at this remark and assured him it was nothing but a common excrescence of the cuticula, but that the bones were all sound below. For the truth of this assertion, he appealed to the touch, desiring he would feel the part. Bramble said it was such a matter of delicacy to meddle with a gentleman's nose that he declined the office. Right, so referring again here to that analogy between the nose and the penis. Dr. L is mortified by Bramble's insinuations, and he hastily withdraws to treat the wart. Uh, and it is, just as your mother told you, don't pick at it, you'll make it worse. So he picks at it and makes it worse. He applies a caustic to the wart, but it's spread in such a manner as to produce a considerable inflammation, attended with an enormous swelling, so that when he next appeared, his whole face was overshadowed by this tremendous nozzle. So here, once again, the deformed nose provides an occasion for examining shifting social boundaries. As the doctor's claims to medical knowledge and his pretensions to superior social status are overturned by Bramble's insinuations that there's something wrong with his nose. 
While from the perspective of class politics, this scene uh, seems or is in some ways opposed to the jest about Davenant. So the beggar woman's ridicule of, of Davenant obviously overturns the existing social hierarchy, while Bramble's ridicule of, a, of an upstart quack reaffirms the social hierarchy. But both scenes depict the same process of social exclusion a process whereby the deformed individual is denied the insider status to which he would otherwise, whether legitimately or illegitimately, lay claim. This scene between Bramble and Dr. L is also broadly indicative of the extent to which any abnormality of the nose could be interpreted as a sign of venereal infection. In the 18th century imagination, warty noses, broken noses, fallen noses, and missing noses were all one, and all could serve as the basis for ridicule and condemnation. A 1759 satire by the amateur poet Mary Latter, addressed to an unnamed military captain, is a case in point. Although the poem's addressee has apparently broken his nose, uh, in falling from his horse, Latter describes him as having no nose at all in the poem, and her words of commiseration deliberately seem to blur this distinction between uh, injury-based um, damage to the nose and disease-based damage to the nose. Furthering these kinds of suggestions about venereal infection, Latter claims to have sent a nose of clay, presumably similar to the false noses sometimes worn by syphilitics, to accompany her verses. With the use of this prosthetic, Latter's speaker cruelly observes, the captain might yet manage to attract female admirers. For though a man may meet his foes in battle when he has lost his nose, Yet ladies often take aversion and think no nose a great aspersion. But any fool you know will pass if he has got a nose in his face. Stick this on then when with your love. Twill stick as close as hand and glove. And I'll defy both great and small to say you've got no nose at all. So Ladder's ridicule in these lines highlights that well-worn link again between a damaged nose and a dysfunctional penis, implying none too subtly that the captain's injury has damaged his sexual prowess. Although he may be fit for the company of men in battle, the noseless captain is no longer equipped to serve female society, at least not without the prosthetic that can stand in for an erect penis, enabling him to please both great and small. Here the captain's nose, much like William Davenant's, becomes a means of overturning a powerful man's claims to elevated status, placing him at the mercy of his social inferior. It's also worth considering, particularly in relation to works with a memento mori theme, like Tristram Shandy, that Ladder identifies the captain's flattened nose as a reminder of his mortality. Ladder's speaker emphasizes the nose's position at the front of the body, the same anatomical consideration that gives us phrases like one by a nose, in order to suggest that the noseless captain will soon be no more. She says, in scripture, sir, tis said we must, as dust we are, return to dust. Then why should you your nose bemoan, since tis but just before you gone? And surely every booby knows that wheresoe'er a person goes, he can but follow his own nose. 
So here, Ladder's poem highlights another of those distinctions made in part through recourse to the nose. Just as it ostensibly separated the Roman-nosed patrician from the flat-nosed plebeian, so the nose also distinguished the face from the skull, the living man from the soon-to-be dead one. A misshapen nose also proved to be the undoing of Henry Fielding's novel, uh, sorry, Henry Fielding's heroine in his final novel, Amelia. Fielding's semi-biographical account of the adventures of an idealized young woman and her erring husband enjoyed a remarkably brief shelf life, thanks in part to a small coterie of critics, including Smollett, as well as the sometimes satirist John Hill and the journalist Bonnell Thornton, who suggested that the heroine's claims to sexual virtue were compromised by her crooked nose. So in the novel, Amelia's nose is damaged, is broken in a coach accident. But of course, by, by the time the novel came out, the connection between abnormal or damaged noses and venereal disease was so strong that Fielding's critics could not resist what seemed like such an obvious target. To make matters worse, Fielding himself had provided some of the raw material for his own ridicule. Not only did he make infection a central issue in the novel's plot line, um, Amelia has a friend whose name is Mrs. Atkinson and she's raped and infected by a diseased libertine. So there is a kind of plot line of venereal infection. Fielding also includes, includes a, a battered aging prostitute who has no nose as one of the characters in the text. So even an otherwise positive reviewer could predict the novel's misfortunes. Uh, so this reviewer observed that Fielding should have written a scene in which Amelia's nose was repaired by the help of some eminent surgeon. Um, although surgeons were also, of course, the proper ministers to venereal disease in this period. And sure enough, the critic was right. Um, uh, critics of the novel exploited Amelia's ambiguous status, with Bonnell Thornton, for example, emphasizing the social implications of Amelia's alleged coach accident. Thornton writes what, what he uh, refers to as a new chapter in Amelia. So he adds an extra chapter to the novel satirically. And in that chapter, he dramatizes an episode in which Amelia's husband also suffers nasal mutilation. And he staggers home hopelessly drunk with his own facial profile as damaged as his wife's. So he, he comes in and Amelia found his high arched Roman nose that heretofore resembled the bridge of a fiddle had been beat all to pieces. As herself had before lost the handle to her face, she now truly sympathized with him in their mutual want of snout. But it was more than she could bear when she came to search his breeches and found nothing in them. For she had put a crooked shilling, the only one they had in the world, and which had been long kept for luck's sake, into his pocket before he went out that he might appear like a gentleman. So here, Thornton aligns the shame of venereal disease with the sin of social climbing, and he attributes both to Fielding's heroine. Having sent her gloriously Roman-nosed husband out with their last shilling so that he might appear like a gentleman, Amelia is horrified when he returns without either the neoclassical Roman nose or the pocket money that would facilitate their pretensions to higher status. 
Further, because Thornton's new chapter dramatizes a man's rather than a woman's facial injury, it invites that old analogy between the nose and the penis. And understood in this way, Amelia's lament over their poverty is also a lewd suggestion that the captain might have lost more than just his nose in this encounter, right? Many of you already spotted this in the line. It was more than she could bear when she came to search his breeches and found nothing in them. Thornton's parody becomes a bit more complex when the maimed hero is examined by Mrs. Atkinson. And in Fielding's original novel, Mrs. Atkinson is a, she's, an, she's a very erudite, uh, learned woman, and she's always kind of producing scraps of information from, from um, classical texts that she's read. But in Thornton's parody, Mrs. Atkinson is a woman whose irritating pretensions to knowledge are effectually the complement of Amelia's irritating pretensions to status. So having seen Booth with his flattened proboscis, to use the term in Thornton's text, Mrs. Atkinson pronounces the following scraps from Virgil and Horace. So I'm not going to read these out because I'm a poor uh, Latin scholar, but there's a clip from the 18th century text there. Uh, and Mrs. Atkinson effectually garbles together two quotations in a way that makes no sense. Right, so the, the first line actually is taken from the Aeneid, and it's a description of a monster uh, who is horrible and huge and eyeless. And then the second two lines are taken from Horace's Ars Poetica, and they refer to um, uh, Horace saying he would not want to be an untalented artist um, any more than he would want to live with his nose turned askew even if he were admired for his black eyes and his black hair. So at first glance, this pairing seems very nonsensical, right? And it, it is. Uh, but it also, in some ways, reiterates the central themes of Thornton's parody. The unenviable position of the untalented artist, in this case, Fielding, and the perilously thin line between the human and the monstrous, the glamorous heroine, and the deformed syphilitic. Amelia's angry response to Mrs. Atkinson's pompous Latinity, which you can see down below there, she says, have done with your nasos and your negroes and don't ye laugh at other people's haps. So Ang Amelia's response here further links the Latin word for nose, nasos, with the word for black, negress. In other words, Amelia's ignorant attempts to dismiss Mrs. Atkinson's remarks effectually equate her husband's ruined nose with blackness. Booth, it would appear, is now in the unenviable position of a flat-faced Negro, his flattened proboscis making him seem more simian than human. Thornton's parody ultimately condemns Amelia and her husband for these aspirational values, suggesting that despite their attempts to ape the manners of their superiors, their flattened faces will ultimately reveal them to be the low-life creatures that they are. This same connection between nasos and negroes, right, between nasal disfiguration, blackness, and outcast status, also characterizes Hogarth's visual depiction of a syphilitic prostitute in his popular print series, A Harlot's Progress. 
Um, I won't go into great detail about Hogarth's prints here, uh, but for people who aren't familiar with them, this is a, a series of six prints that tell the story of an innocent young Yorkshire lass, and that's her there on sorry, that's her there on the left, uh, who comes down from Yorkshire to London and is lured into prostitution by this madam, uh, Mother Needham. And the, the prince tell the story of her rise and fall. And she meets either a tragic or a fitting end, depending on whether you see her as a, a victim of society's failings or whether you see her as a perpetuator of those failings. So Moll does not actually suffer from nasal deformity herself. She never um, contracts that uh, uh, damage to the bridge of the nose. But she does contract and die from a venereal infection. And that infection, I would suggest, marks her as a kind of déclassé. And her isolation in the late stages of disease is prefigured in Hogarth's series of prints by her association with a series of other figures, Jewish, African, syphilitic, and Simeon, all of whom are identified as marginal in part because of their misshapen noses. So the series as a whole establishes a set of parallels, suggesting not only the interchangeability of different forms of alterity, but also the perilous and disturbing ease with which one might move between the positions of insider and outsider, healthy citizen and diseased outcast. The most obvious of these unsettling parallels is between Maul and her serving maid, a figure who first appears in plate three after Maul has lost her position as a kept mistress. So this is the, the point in when Maul has descended into common prostitution, and this is her room. She's just about to be arrested by this man, Charles Gonson. But right now, she's in her room, that's Maul, and this is her, uh, her bunter, her servant. And as you can see, the, the maid, the bunter there, has clearly suffered from the sunken nose that can result from tertiary syphilis. And her features here pose a kind of grotesque contrast against Maul's handsomeness. So we can think of this as a kind of before and after pairing, right? Uh, if you're familiar with Hogarth's before and after series. So there's a sense in which Maul is the before and the, the disfigured servant is, is what awaits her. But the servant and Maul also serve as character foils in a number of other ways. So for one thing, the serving maid here occupies the, the honest servant class position that Maul might have shared if she hadn't been um, brought into prostitution. So plate one sh actually shows that Maul's come down to work as a seamstress. We know that because she's got a work bag here that has a pair of scissors on it. So Maul's come down from Yorkshire to London to work as a semstress, and instead she's been lured into prostitution by a madam. So in the third plate, we can see the maid is in some ways her parallel, right? Living, uh, living the servant life that Maul originally went down to London to live. Secondly, Maul and her maid trade places midway through the series. So this plate depicts the bunter at work, right, while Maul is... is uh, showing off a watch, a gold watch, that she's presumably pickpocketed from a client. But the next plate shows Maul laboring in prison. So here she is. And the servant 
with the, with the disfigured nose, is looking on and laughing, right? Smiling over the fact that these people are, are stealing her mistress's fine garments. So they've traded places midway through the series. By play five, the maid who is here has taken charge of Maul's household. So Maul is this shrouded figure here. She's uh, being um, treated to, treated as the wrong verb. She's being subjected to mercury fumigation for her venereal disease. So she's wrapped up in a shroud and placed by the fire. And we can see the bunter has taken charge of the household. And here she's trying to eject uh, two doctors from the premises um, who are identified as Richard Rock and Jean Misobin, both of them well-known venereologists from the 18th century. So both women by this point have become the disfigured victims of venereal disease, right? The bunter has got her damaged nose and Moll, who is now wasting away and uh, suffering, has also lost her teeth, which are visible here on the, on the table. They're hard to see um, uh, in a room this size, but um, she's, she too has become disfigured from venereal disease. So the interchangeability of these two characters, the maid and the, the heroine, signals to the viewer the ease with which one might move between the categories of sexual desirability and sexual disease, insider and outsider, beautiful young woman and disfigured woman. Several other figures in the harlot's progress also serve as parallels to Mole, and their presence unsettlingly connects the threat posed by venereal disease with the markers of Jewish, black, and Simeon identity. So in plate two from this series, Mole is still uh, doing pretty well. This is, this is right after she's been lured into prostitution. She's become a kept mistress of this man, um, and, but she's already begun to slip beyond the boundaries of polite white society. So her keeper here is a Jewish merchant, and her adopted household includes a fashionable black servant boy and a monkey visible running away there to the left. The alterity, the otherness of all three figures, the Jewish merchant, the African servant boy, and the monkey is signaled by their distorted or, or abnormal, as they would be thought in the 18th century, facial features. So the Jewish merchant, while possessing a pale complexion, has dark eyebrows and a hooked nose that are meant to, to signal to us uh, in, the, in, in, in using anti-Semitic tropes that he's Jewish. More obliquely, he's labeled as Jewish by the Old Testament scenes on his wall. So he's got an Ark of the Covenant scene here and one with Jonah and the gourd here. He's also signaled as Jewish by his choice of pet. Uh, the monkey is invoked here as in many other anti-Semitic texts and images as a symbol of the Jews attempts to ape the manners of his superiors, a very long line of anti-Semitic imagery. And in keeping with the commonplace stereotype, the Jewish merchant here is portrayed as an ambitious social climber. And the sumptuous contents of his household on one level expose his foreignness, but on another level reveal his success in passing as British by adopting a fashionable lifestyle. So like Maul and her maid, the merchant demonstrates the permeability of social boundaries. In this case, potentially boundaries of race and or religion as well as class. 
The boy and the monkey, while more obviously identifiable as foreign, are equally disturbing as symbols of venereal infection. And their presence not only confirms Maul's position as a déclassé, it also gestures towards the connection between flat-faced Africans, flat-faced monkeys, and deformed victims of venereal disease. Although Maul herself still appears very fresh-faced and beautiful at this point, barring a few uh, suspicious beauty spots, which you can see if you look at the print up close, her proximity to, to these three figures, all of them considered to be nasally abnormal or deformed in some way, is meant to prefigure the darker episodes that follow. In the final plate in the series, uh, we see Hogarth reiterating this theme of movement between different social categories. So just as Maul moves down the social ladder, tainted first by her association with Jewishness and blackness, and then by infectious disease, so her fellow prostitutes seem determined to ascend from diseased poverty into the middling ranks. So by plate six here, Maul's short life has reached its conclusion, but all of her colleagues continue to ply their trade at her funeral. So her funeral here is filled with prostitutes who are romancing the undertaker, and here one of them is masturbating a clergyman beneath his surplice, and you can see his cup runneth over there. That's how Hogarth is indicating to us what's happening beneath the surplice. So at the conclusion of the series then, what I'm trying to suggest is that Hogarth uh, doesn't just emphasize the interchangeability of different kinds of marginality. He's also exposing the degree to which seemingly opposite categories of being, virtue and vice, health and disease, whiteness and blackness, uh, insider and outsider, these kinds of categories are very precarious and they can blur into one another. To conclude, I'd like to look at just one more treatment of the disfigured nose in detail. And it's from Ned Ward's account of uh, the London clubs in his 18th century history of London clubs. Ward's work was reprinted throughout the century, uh, variously titled The Secret History of Clubs, The London Clubs, Satirical Reflections on Clubs, you get the idea. Uh, and some of its chapters focus on real clubs, and some of them on imagined societies. The text as a whole reflects a club culture that simultaneously provided new opportunities for social exchange and reinforced long-standing practices of social exclusion. Roy Porter has written about the great proliferation of clubs for men of all stations in 18th century society, but these institutions were not just about spreading the new spirit of sociability, as Porter suggests. They were also, of course, about identifying and policing social boundaries, right? Boundaries of race, religion, class, taste, politics, etc. In Ward's satiric history, each club gets its own chapter with an eyewitness narrative explaining the basis on which the club was formed and how new members were recru recruited or refused. In its fullest version, the work included segments on a number of well-known London societies. Uh, so the Kit Kat Club, the Sublime Society of Beef Steaks, these all had a chapter in Ward's account of the clubs. Ward also, however, gave satiric accounts of clubs that were designed for those who, for one reason or another, faced ostracism from society at large, and they united under the principle of a shared stigma. 
These included, and I've chosen these examples specially, the Quacks Club, the Farting Club, and most germane for our purposes today, the No-Nose Club. Ward's account describes the No-Nose Club as the brainchild of a well-bred gentleman whose initial motives appear to be nothing more than class condescension and random cruelty. So this founder, whose name we never learn, is he, he likes to indulge a fondness for strolling through the less reputable areas of London. And while he's doing this one day, he realizes how many people of both sexes had sacrificed their noses to the god Priapus and had unluckily fallen into the Ethiopian fashion of flat faces. The um, gentleman concludes that he thinks it would prove a comical sight for so many maimed lechers, snuffling old stallions, young unfortunate whoremasters, poor scarified bods, and salivated whetstones to show their scandalous visards in one noseless society. So approaching these individuals one by one, he asks the potential members of this new club to meet him at a tavern. And he makes them some vague promises of some kind of pecuniary advantage. When the guests begin to assemble at the tavern, they quickly conclude that they are the objects of a private joke. And their suspicions seem confirmed when they ask for wine and are told that their host has agreed to pay, provided that, quote, it might be the forfeiture of a quart if anyone should presume to put their nose in the glass. In making this statement, the host is referring to a long tradition of jokes in which a, a large-nosed or a long-nosed drinker takes more than his fair share of the communal pot by sticking his nose as well as the mouth uh, into the glass. This is one to try, I guess, the next time you're at the pub. But invoked in this context, the old joke takes on a new irony, which is made possible by the community's shared outsider status. If the man who drinks through his nose is breaking the rules for socially acceptable behavior, then the man with no nose would presumably be the ideal drinking companion, right? The, the perfect social companion. And yet, his noselessness brands him a social outcast. So while the, the guests of the No-Nose Club are initially offended by their host's mockery, they begin to reflect as they await his arrival on the deformity that unites them. So one of them is musing and he asks, how long might we all fight before we have bloody noses? And another observes that they might with impunity punish the host for his insults by pulling him by the nose if he doesn't treat them well. As these clever puns suggest, the no-nosers cement their newfound social ties by asserting their own club's exclusivity. Their hostile response to the host dramatizes a scenario in which they get to cast out, in turn, the man who seems to have ridiculed them as outcasts. These aspirations to exclusivity are also underlined by the text's ironic references to them as snuffletonians. So the elite status of this society, the play on words suggests, rivals that of the Etonians, who dominate the other end of the spectrum. When the host does at last arrive, and rather unexpectedly petitions to join the club, a spokesman for the group challenges him over his false promises of financial reward, jesting, we came in such haste 
that we left our noses behind us. He continues, we must flatly tell you that we expect to be respected since soldiers full of scars and old abbey monuments defaced by antiquity are always most venerable. Therefore, if you any way affront us, we shall toss up our snouts and perhaps bring yours upon a level with the rest of the companies. Or if you have any design to draw us into expense, you will find yourself deceived, for we are not persons to be led by the nose into such an inconveniency. So here, the spokesman cleverly inverts the social hierarchy on which elite clubs are based, championing the poor and diseased over a wealthy and well-connected gentleman who is apparently about to be refused membership. Comparing the grisly effects of venereal disease with the honorable scars earned in battle, which is a trope that runs through a lot of uh, poetry about venereal disease in this period, the speaker also conflates the noseless faces of, of prostitutes and pimps who have venereal disease with the noseless Greek and Roman busts that were so admired by aristocratic connoisseurs, right? Monuments that are defaced by antiquity. The speakers vow that he and his peers will toss up their snouts at any effrontery affects another clever reversal. Even the noseless can turn down their noses at somebody. Rather surprisingly, given the satirical tone of his earlier message, the wealthy gentleman turns out to want nothing quite so much as to belong to a club that wouldn't have someone like him for a member. He explains that though his own meager jaws are unhappily disgraced with an elephant's trunk, he would like to be included as part of the No-Nose Club on the grounds that he has attempted through long-standing debauchery to destroy his own nose and to make his own face as flat as his father's and his grandfather's before him. When the host's petition proves successful, the no-nose club becomes an illustration not just of the human need to form and maintain cliques, but also of the impossibility of maintaining consistent boundaries between those who are inside the group and those who are outside it. While the club's membership criteria initially seem perfectly clear, the inclusion of a man with neither the facial deformity nor the marginal status attributed to the other members undercuts the no-nose club's claims to exclusivity. Understood in this light, the host's involvement draws attention to the impossibility of reliably identifying the diseased and segregating them from the healthy unless you have a symptom as graphic and unequivocal as a collapsed nasal bridge. Ward's account concludes with the disbanding of the club when the host dies within a year from mercury poisoning. In their final meeting at the host's funeral, the club's members offer a verse elegy that defines the fallen nose, not only as a reminder of mortality, but also as a symbol of their host's gracious condescension to plebeian status. So this is their poem in honor of their, um, their founder. Mourn for the loss of such a generous friend, whose lofty nose no humble snout disdained, but though of Roman height, would stoop so low as to soothe those who ne'er a nose could show. 
Praising the host's lofty status, the no-nosers here celebrate the inherent contradiction between their founder's elevated Roman nose, right, his patrician profile, and his humble fellow feeling with diseased outcasts. Like the heroine of Hogarth's Harlot's Progress, the host, while not alien in appearance himself, has become noseless by association. And like the later scenes in Hogarth's series, the final lines of the no-nosers' elegy for their host gesture obscurely towards the connections between hierarchies of race, gender, and species, as the host's kindness to the club members is compared with the love of a noble lady for a humble actor. So they are praising his condescension and, and kindness towards them. And they're saying he's just like a kind, beauteous, beauteous duchess, once admired by all that saw her and by all desired, who to show the generous humor of her grace maintained a player with a pancake face, as if she had a strong desire to kiss the monkey till her nose was flat as his. So in these lines, the beauteous duchess is blessed like the host with seeming good health, with good looks, with money, with power, but she condescends to love a flat-nosed player, an actor, a man whose face and occupation identify him as a monkey because he spends his life aping other people. So here, once again, venereal disease is linked with the primitive, the subhuman, and insofar as the monkey was, was used as a symbol of African culture in the 18th century with blackness. In ridiculing the relationship between uh, a lowly pancake-faced actor and a duchess, these lines re-emphasize the ease with which the marginal, whether marked by infection, poverty, or visible racial difference, can infiltrate the center. At the same time, the figure of the monkey leads us back to that host's initial reference to the Ethiopian fashion of flat faces, with its very unsettling equation of syphilitic and African features. Here is the duchess who's tainted by association, as her desires prompt her to cross boundaries not just of race, but of species. Evidently, subhuman status, like venereal disease, is contagious. So to conclude uh, where I began with Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy, if we think of Tristram Shandy in the context of works like Ned Ward's um, Secret History of Clubs uh, or Hogarth's illustrations of noseless Londoners, we might reconsider that novel as the superlative contribution to an eccentric 18th century tradition of no-nose jokes. While Stern's protagonist, much like Fielding's Amelia, has a nose that is ostensibly deformed by accident rather than venereal infection, Tristram Shandy perpetually circles around the issue of venereal disease, playing cleverly on the widespread understanding of the deformed nose as an emblem of infection. While I haven't time tonight to go into a longer discussion of the novel, um, readers interested in that might have to look at my own chapter of noses, I hope the past few minutes have helped to convince you that in contradiction to Tristram's literal-minded assertions, a nose in the 18th century was never just a nose. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.